All right, we're in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Now, typically I start off by reading to you the passage, but I'm not going to read it to you just now because I want to take a second to do a recap because it's been a while since we've been together. All right. And a short pencil is better than a long memory. All right. At our last study, we left off around the midpoint of the tribulation. And as you know, we've been studying Revelation starting in chapter 4 and looking at what's going to take place after the rapture chronologically. We've already seen the beast of the Antichrist. He's been revealed for who he really is as he steps into the Jewish temple and declares himself to be God. And he goes after the nation of Israel to wipe them off the face of the earth. But a remnant of the Jews are protected in the wilderness. You know how the Bible talked about that, and we've already seen this. What I want to do real quick, though, is ask you a question. Have you ever really considered why Satan hates Israel so much? Has anybody ever thought about that? Why does Satan hate Israel so much? Why does Satan want them removed from the face of the earth? All throughout their history, nation upon nation upon nation is trying to wipe the name of Israel off the face of the earth. Part of it is because they're God's chosen, but there's something deeper. Go ahead. There we go. Did you hear what Jeff said? He said, if Satan can make God out to be a liar, he steals God's glory. Stick with me here. And we're going to look at some of these tonight. God has made promises that he made way back in the beginning to Abraham and to his descendants. And that promises, those promises haven't been fulfilled yet. And the promises talk about in the last days that he's going to gather the nation of Israel back into their land. And he himself is going to come and reign as their king. And he's going to do it all in that piece of property. And if there is no Israel, Jesus can't come back and set up his kingdom. Remember, Satan knows that he's a defeated foe, but he's still so prideful, he still thinks he can win in some way or another. And so the nation of Israel and the promises of the scripture about what God's going to do in Israel are extremely important. And we're going to deal a little bit tonight in our introduction with the fact that unfortunately many in Christendom try to spiritualize the last days. And, and they don't think that Israel really has anything to do with what's going to happen. And the church is now the fulfillment of Israel promises and these types of things. But I want to kind of walk you through a couple of things scripturally to show you why it's important that there be a literal nation of Israel so that Jesus can come back literally to this earth and set up his kingdom. Go ahead. Right. Well, definitely the fact that he has his, revealed himself to them as his chosen people is a big part of it. But like I said, if Satan can re just kill them off and that there's no Israel, then God can't fulfill his promises. Like you said, he's therefore a liar and therefore he's no longer God. And Satan wins. But yes, it's all tied to it. Go with me real quick to uh, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, look at, we're going to look at verses 31 through 40. Behold, the days are coming, declares who? The Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, remember, when we read this, a lot of people say, well, that means what he's done for the church. 
Actually, we've been grafted in. We've been given the promises of Israel. And by God's grace, we Gentiles have been given the promises that are one day going to be fulfilled in Israel. But we have not replaced them because look closely. This is a promise made to who? The house of Israel and the house of what? Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord. Has anybody caught? How many times God keeps saying, oh, by the way, I'm saying this. Who get, this says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and who, the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the fountains, foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming again, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. Did you catch that? Where the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Garib, and then sh shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. It's very clear that God is saying, I'm going to literally rebuild Jerusalem and the nation of Israel in that land. And even gives names and places and specifics. Let me ask you a quick question. When God told the nation of Israel, when they were in slavery in Egypt, I'm going to bring you out of this captivity and bring you back to the land that I promised you. Did he do it? Yes, he did. When, because of their disobedience, God had them go into Babylonian captivity. And God, through the prophets, said to the nation of Israel, I'm going to bring you back from your captivity into the land. Did he do it? Then why do we, in most, and I say this, folks, because you may not realize this, most of Christendom today believes in an amillennial view that there is no millennial kingdom, that Jesus doesn't literally come and set up his kingdom on the earth. They don't believe that God's promises for Israel are literally going to be fulfilled in Israel. Why would we, when God said, I'm going to bring you out of that and into the land, and he did, and I'm going to bring you out of Babylonia and into the land, and he did, why all of a sudden, when the scriptures go on, like we just read about the last days, that he's going to bring them back into the land and rebuild it, why all of a sudden do we say, well, it doesn't really mean that? If he said it, he'll do it. Go with me real quick to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 38. Look at this, starting in verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. But let me, ask, let me ask you a question. 
Has that happened yet? Do the nations know because of Israel that God is the Lord? Mm -mm. But God said the nations will know because of what he does in Israel that he is the Lord. This hasn't been fulfilled yet. I will take you from the nations. Did you catch that? And gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give it you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The wonderful promise that God has given us Gentiles, as we've already looked at, to make Israel jealous. Keep reading. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations." It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste um, places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a, the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with the flocks of the people, and they will know that I am the Lord. Folks, if God said that I'm going to bring them back from all the nations and put them in the land, and I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people, he did it when they were in Egypt. He did it literally when they were in Babylon. He will do it again now. Now, just because they're back in the land doesn't mean that this prophecy has been fulfilled. You know why? They're, they're the dry bones right now. The breath of God's not in them yet, but God is doing something. And as we've been looking, Satan at the midpoint of the tribulation is going to indwell the beast, the Antichrist. And he's going to go after the nation of Israel. Two-thirds of them are going to be killed. One-third is going to escape into the wilderness. Remember, Jesus told them, when you see the sign of the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet... Run. Don't even go back into your house. Run. And they're going to be protected for how long? Three and a half years. And then at the end of that time period, Jesus is going to come back. Those Jews that are left and alive, all of them will believe. He'll cleanse them from their iniquities. He'll come and he'll set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. We're going to get into more details of all that later on in our study, so I won't get into that tonight. So this has all been your introduction. Go back with me now to Revelation chapter 11. Before we continue anymore in chapter 13 and getting introduced to the false prophet who causes most of the world to worship the beast, we have to go back to chapter 11 and see something that's been going on for a chunk of the first half of the tribulation period. By the way, I gave you a clue to a question I'm going to ask you later on. We're going to go back and look at something that's been going on for a chunk 
of the first half of the tribulation period. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, the passage we're going to dig into tonight. John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, against three and a half years. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, again, three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. By the way, that's why we went to chapter 13 before we got to chapter 11, because you needed to be introduced to the beast. This is the first time the beast is mentioned in the book of Revelation, and you really don't know who he is. That's why we jumped to chapter 13 and got introduced to the beast. Now you know who this beast is that comes after the two witnesses. And he'll make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So we know what city that is, right? Jerusalem. But see, again, it symbolically is called Egypt and Sodom. It tells you what it is, but it's where Jesus was crucified, which we know is Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will, ga will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. All right. In verses 1 through 3, we see that John is told to measure the temple and those who worship there. Again, like I've been saying over and over, and will continue to repeat to you until we finish this study, and probably into whatever book we study next. If you had been reading the Old Testament, this would not seem strange to you that he was given a reed or a measuring stick and told to measure the temple, because so was Ezekiel. We're not going to take the time to turn there, but if you go back and look at Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel is told to measure the temple. Now, we also see that interestingly enough, in Ezekiel 40, when Ezekiel's told to measure the temple, at the time he was told to measure the temple, there was no temple in Israel. Actually, Solomon's temple had been destroyed by uh, the Babylonians three years prior to when Ezekiel was given this message by God to measure the temple. And the temple that Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 40, that, is, that Ezekiel's told to measure is actually the millennial temple that's going to be a, the temple after the tribulation period temple. All right? It's a totally different temple, one that hasn't been built yet, won't be built till the end of the tribulation period. But he's told to measure that one. But it's interesting. Here he's told to measure the temple, and there is no temple in Israel at that time. 
Also, though, when John is told here to write and to measure the temple, there's no temple in Israel. Because the temple in Israel had been destroyed 25 years prior to the writing of the book of Revelation by Herod. I mean, and, and, and the Romans. As they, Herod's temple had been destroyed by the Romans when they came in in AD 70. Remember, the book of Revelation was written around 95 AD. So when John's told to measure the temple, there is no temple in Israel. But the temple he's measuring is the tribulation temple. There's going to be a temple rebuilt sometime. When, we don't know. But I can tell you when it will be rebuilt before. It'll be finished being rebuilt before the midpoint of the tribulation. Can anybody tell me why we know this? Be exactly, because the, the Antichrist who's going to step into the wing of the temple declare himself to be God, according to Daniel 9.27, according to Jesus in Matthew 24, and according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with Paul. So there has to be a temple in Israel at that time. We can speculate as to why it's built or who allows it to be built or where it's going to be. But we do know this much. There's going to be a temple. And the temple that John is told to measure is the tribulation temple. Now, he's also told not to measure the outer courts. The outer courts were the Gentile courts. That's where only the Gentiles were allowed because the Jews were the ones allowed inside the temple. The Gentiles were in the outer courts. But look closely at what he's told to measure. He's told to measure the temple, the altar, and what else? And those who worship there. Isn't that interesting? He's told to measure the temple. And when we hear someone say measure the temple, we picture length and width and dimensions. But when it comes to measuring people, it's kind of hard to measure length and width and dimensions. Especially when I try to get fitted for a suit. They have a little trouble. But actually, this measurement has not as much to do with length and width and dimensions as it does with, what, sorry? Not belief or where they stand up spiritually. How they, have you ever heard the term, how you measure up? John is told that he's to measure how the nation of Israel measures up. And then he goes and says, and because of how they measure up, I'm going to send my two witnesses. And they're going to be preaching for three and a half years. To the Gentiles, not as much, but to the Jews. That's these two witnesses you're going to see over time. Their, their, their role is to preach to the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. Remember, at the very beginning, we've already seen that the 144,000 are sealed by God, and they're sent out as his witnesses, Jewish witnesses all over the whole globe. And many come to faith from many, all the nations because of their preaching. But God is going to have two specific, as he calls them, my, my two witnesses in the city of Jerusalem, and they're going to be preaching to the nation of Israel dressed in sackcloth for three and a half years. All right? Now... I'm going, what I'm going to do is just, just kind of, I've rewritten these verses into a little recap. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of read you my recap so we can deal with the time we have left with two kind of important questions. All right. They're clothed in sackcloth. Does anybody know why they were clothed in sackcloth? Again, using the Bible to interpret the Bible. It's humility. It's a, it's a clothing of Repentance. Go with me to Matthew chapter 11. Put a bookmark here in Revelation 11. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Jesus, again, in the nation of Israel, speaking to the people of Israel, made a very interesting statement in Matthew 11, verses 20 and 21. 
Verse 20 of Matthew 11, Then he, meaning Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, do you see it, in sackcloth and ashes. All through the scriptures, we're not going to take the time to do that study. You'll see that when people were willing to repent and they were broken of their ways, the way they demonstrated the fact that they were not proud is they dressed themselves in humility. They covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes as if to say, I'm broken, I'm not proud. Let's be honest, we, some of us like to dress up more than others, right? And we like to look nice, and we, we get a new outfit. We, I'm showing off mine. I got, Becky got me this for Christmas. It's a, it's a golf shirt, and it just, you know, it jumps out, you know? It's not sackcloth, I'll tell you that right now. This is not a sackcloth type of shirt. This is a look-at-me kind of a shirt, isn't it? But my wife wants you all to look at me, so she bought it for me this way. I like it because it's comfortable. I like loose clothing, and I like this one. This is good. But sackcloth was a, was a clothing you wore to show humility and brokenness and repentance. The whole town of Nineveh, even they put sackcloth on the animals, the Bible said. So if these two men are preaching in sackcloth, we know what their message is, isn't it? It's a message to the nation of Israel of humility and repentance and brokenness. You see, the temple's been measured, even the altar and the people. Folks, just because there's going to be a temple in Israel doesn't mean that Israel's going to be right before God. Do you understand where I'm going? Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're right before God. It's one of the things I always tell people. When we stand before God, He's not even going to ask us what church we went to. He's not going to ask what kind of denomination it was. It's going to be whether or not we knew him through Jesus Christ and whether we walked in obedience to him in that relationship. We also see that they're described as the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Again, go with me back to Zechariah chapter 4. You'll see that this is what's being referred to when this says these two are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. In Zechariah chapter 4, Look at verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump to verse 11 through 14. In Zechariah chapter 4, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And, they, and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right bowl and one on the other on its left. Jump down to verse 11, because the angel explains what the lampstand represents and stuff. But in verse 11, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and, and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So at this point, Zechariah is given a picture of two olive trees and he says, what are these two olive trees? He said, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord. 
These are the ones chosen by God for His purpose, the anointed ones who stand by the Lord. We get now to Revelation chapter 11, and we see that these two, look at verse 4 of Revelation 11. These two are the, olive, the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So these two individuals, whoever they are, have been set apart by God for this purpose, and they have been for a very, very long time. Zechariah saw them in his vision, and they were there ready and waiting, ready to go for the purpose that God had for them. We're going to try to deal tonight with who are the two witnesses. We're also going to try to deal with when was their ministry. Was it in the first half? Was it in the second half? These types of things. But we need to get some more information about them first before we go any further in answering those questions. We also see fire comes from their mouths. That's kind of cool. If anybody tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths. The Bible also says, if you were to keep reading, that they can stop the rain. They also can turn the waters into blood. They can strike the earth with plagues. But amazingly, after three and a half years of their ministry, the beast, or the Antichrist, is allowed to kill them. Their bodies lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days as the world celebrates and gives each other gifts because they're dead. Isn't that amazing? They're so excited that these two people are killed that they start giving each other gifts. By the way, this is one of those passages that when I was a kid, years and years ago in studying prophecy, gave me such a hard time to understand because I remember reading back in the day that everybody in the whole world saw them. And I remember thinking, that's not possible. How could everybody in the whole world see them all at once? Nowadays, it's like a no-brainer, isn't it? You could just pull out your phone and see whatever's going on in the whole globe. Everybody could all watch it all at once. But back in the day, that didn't make any sense. But the longer we believe the Bible and just let it speak for itself, even though it may not make sense to us now, God knows how it's going to play out. And if it said it, it's going to happen. We also see that after three and a half days, they come back to life, terrifying the people who see it. And a voice from heaven calls them up, and they are raptured in the sight of everyone. Now, I don't know about you. Look at verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Does anybody remember hearing those words? Nope, not Thessalonians. But Thessalonians talks about this. But those words come up here. Boy, we got to start over. Revelation chapter 4. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Exactly. After this, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, I looked, and this is after the message to the churches. After this, I, and, uh, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, which was Jesus when he was on the earth, said, what? Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. By the way, do you all believe that after the three and a half years of these two witnesses preaching in Jerusalem, that they're going to be killed? Hopefully, because the Bible says it's going to happen. Do you believe that after three and a half days of them being dead, that they're going to just stand up and come back to life, freaking everybody out? Do you also believe that when Jesus says, come up here, they're going to come up right there in sight of everybody and go to be with him? Then believe it, that he's going to tell us the same thing in the rapture. 
There's going to be a shout. It'll be the trumpet of God. And those of us who are alive are going to be caught up. He's going to bring with him those who are already with him. Their bodies are going to come up out of the ground and we who are alive are going to be caught up. Paul says, let me tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye. Folks, John was told after he was given the message, he was to write about three things. Remember what he saw, what is, and what will take place after this. After he wrote about what he saw in Revelation chapter 1, and then he wrote about what is in the church age in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and the message to the churches at that time that also passes on to us those promises. But the beginning of chapter 4, he's told, come up here, and I'll show you what's going to take place after this. And everything we've been studying in this study of Revelation, chronologically from chapter 4 on, all this stuff's going to happen on the earth after we're already gone. But I just want to encourage you with, if you believe he's going to tell them to come up here and they're going to go, he's going to say the same thing to us, already, and we're going to be raptured prior to all this happening. That's just kind of cool. But the cool stuff's about to show up. There was a great earthquake while this is happening, and a tenth of Jerusalem crumbles. And the Bible even tells us 7,000 people in Jerusalem die because of the earthquake. The rest of the people, though, give glory to God. This is kind of cool, but I'm not going to tell you why just yet, because it will help you answer the question of when does this all take place? What is, when is their ministry in the first half or the second half? And I don't want to help you with that question just yet. Let's deal with these two questions, though, in the time that we have left tonight. When is their ministry, and who are these two witnesses? When is their ministry? I'm going to tell you right now, it cannot begin. We see from the Scriptures that their ministry is 1,260 days, or three and a half years. But their ministry cannot begin at the midpoint of the tribulation. Can anybody tell me why? Our clue is, script, is in here in the Scriptures. What's that, Duke? There's not enough time for them to lay dead. Their ministry is for three and a half years, but then they lay in the city for three and a half days. And then they're taken up. And also look at verse 14 of Revelation chapter 11. It says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. There's still stuff that's going to go on after this happens. So if their ministry starts at the midpoint of the tribulation and they preach during the second half, that's not possible t- time-wise. So it has to be prior to the midpoint, at least. Here's the answer to the question. It's either at the very beginning of the tribulation period or sometime soon after. It either begins right at the beginning of the tribulation period, ending right at the midpoint, plus three and a half days, or it's sometime after the beginning of the the, the tribulation period, carrying over into the second half a little bit. You see, there's a couple of questions that you have to kind of deal with, and I'm just going to deal with them quickly because... I think I can prove that they're not this possibility. But there is a possibility that these two witnesses are people that we've never been introduced to yet. They could be two converts from the preaching of the 144,000. Because, you know, the Bible says the 144,000 at the beginning are going to go out as witnesses. And there may be two witnesses. These two witnesses could be two converts that come out of their preaching. If that is the case... Their ministry can't start at the very beginning of the tribulation period because there has to be some time for the sealing and then to go out and so on. If these individuals are the two people I think they are, and I'm going to take some time to really lay out for you scripturally who I believe they are. If they are who I think they are, they don't have to be saved by the 144,000s preaching because they've already been saved. They've already been in the presence of God 
and they're going to come back to the earth for this purpose. So that ministry could start at the beginning, but at the same time, chances are it's not long after the beginning of the tribulation period, carrying over a little bit into the second half, and then while Israel is running, remember how we saw they gave glory, the rest that weren't killed in the earthquake and all that gave glory to God? Who were they preaching to? They're preaching to the Jews. Go ahead. Is it possible that these two, when the, the beast kills them, continues on and declares himself God in the temple? It could be. It, like I say, it very well could be that they start right at the beginning of the tribulation. They're killed right at the midpoint as he declares himself to be God. And, and all. And I, I lean toward that, Jeff, because of the fact we don't know. I always avoid saying this is how it's going to be unless the scripture says. But I'm just going to tell you, I lean toward that their ministry starts right at the beginning. They're killed at the midpoint as he kills them, steps into the temple, declares himself to be God. Israel needs to run for their lives. But at the same time, because of their preaching, those who weren't killed, they gave glory to God, as you know. And that's when Israel starts to run for their lives. The Antichrist goes after them and all these types of things. Go ahead. run for their lives, isn't that when the earthquake occurs? Yeah, there's a possibility, actually, because there's prophecy in Zechariah that talks about that as well. How about there's going to be the earthquake and they're going to run and... Like I say, we could spend all night just answering that one question and dealing with. The problem is, I could give you scriptures that would make you be able to build in your mind your own theory, but it would be theory. But yes, there are prophecies that talk about in Zechariah chapter 14 about them running during an earthquake and how the earth splits. And there's going to be a lot of stuff like that. Is that a possibility? Yes, it is. And most of the people in the room said, I don't even know what Jeff and Jim are even talking about. That's why we're not going there. We could, I'd kill you with speculation, and I don't want to kill you with speculation. I want to show you some really cool stuff, though, from the Scriptures. So when does their ministry start? It's definitely not in the second half, or at least starting in the midpoint. It has to start in the first half at some point. I lean toward right at the beginning, where they're killed at the midpoint of the tribulation. And then their body's laying for three and a half days into the second half. But then they're called, told to come up here. But let's deal now with this question of who the two witnesses are. This is something people love to speculate about and have been everywhere I go when I teach prophecy, people always want to know who are the two witnesses? And let me give you the Bible answer. We don't know. <laughs> have a good night. Actually, we don't know. But I believe from a lot of scriptures, I think I can show you who I believe they are. And I'm telling you right now, this is thus says Jim Johnson. But I believe I have a lot of scripture to back it up, and I'm just going to lay this out for you and let you take, take it from there. All right? Because as you're going to see at the end of our study tonight, who they actually are doesn't really matter. There's something else that's way, way more important than who they really are, and we'll deal with that as we close. But for years, there has been a statement that has been made by, for people for years, and I want to blow it up tonight. Some of you who have studied prophecy probably have heard people say this. I know who the two witnesses are. It's Enoch and Elijah, because Enoch never died, and Elijah never died. And Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for man once to die and then face the judgment. Therefore, since Enoch and Elijah never died, they have to come back to the earth and die, because it's appointed for man once to die. Does anybody, show of hands, how many people have heard that before? 
Let me kind of blow that up for you. How many of you believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church? Show of hands. All right, you just said that you're not going to die, but you're going to be taken, if you're alive at the time, before this happens. Are you going to have to come back and die? Isn't that amazing? For all these years, people are saying, they have to come back and die because they didn't die. Well, all those people raptured that are going to be caught up, they don't die either. They just go be with the Lord and get their new body. Are you all going to have to come back and die? Well, I don't want that. Well, build your theology better then. Plus, Enoch wasn't a Jew. Enoch actually might be more of a picture of God's grace to the Gentiles. Enoch wasn't a Jew. All right? And by the way, it's appointed for man once to die. Be careful about taking words and making them say things the scripture doesn't mean. Because Lazarus died how many times? Twice. So you, you see what I'm saying? The danger of people, well, it says right here. Look at context. Use the whole of Scripture and build your theology from the context and the whole of Scripture. When the context and the whole of Scripture match up, you've got a correct interpretation. All right? But I'm going to tell you tonight that I lean toward Moses and Elijah. And here's why. Listen close with me and get your pens out because I can't wait to show you how much the Bible, I think, shows us who the two witnesses are. First of all, we saw that they're able to stop the rain, right? Now, we know that Elijah was one who said to Ahab, it won't rain here in Israel except at my word. Right? Remember that? That whole story in the Jezebel and the prophets of Baal? Let me show you something that God showed me in my study for tonight that I've never seen. I've seen this verse before. I've read this verse before. I've preached on this verse before. I've never seen what it said like I saw for this study. Go with me to James chapter 5 and look at verse 17. James chapter 5, verse 17. This is actually one of the things I've been waiting to get to all night. James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for how long? Three and a half years it did not rain on the earth. Isn't that cool? I saw your face shield. It's like, I've never seen that. It never jumped out at me that he prayed and it didn't rain for how long? You want to talk about for some foreshadowing, folks? Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Oh, you go back with me to Revelation chapter 11 and, and listen to what it says. Verse 5, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. How long did they prophesy according to the passage we're reading? And they prophesied for three and a half years. I think we got a little picture as to who one of the two witnesses are. But it gets better. It gets better. They also are able to turn water into blood and inflict plagues. By the way, who did God use in the whole plague thing? Moses. And by the way, if you got Tony's book that I told you to get, he actually parallels what God does during the tribulation period with the plagues that he sent on Egypt, and they're identical. That what God was doing to the nation of Egypt to get their attention and to get the nation of Israel's attention is going to be paralleled during the tribulation period 
and what he does during the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. There's a parallel between the two. And if you see it, it'll blow your mind. I don't have time to get into that tonight because I want to finish Revelation sometime by 2018. All right? But there's so much here. Go with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, look at verses 28 through 31. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he, meaning Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountainside to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Look closely, folks. When Jesus was transfigured on that mountain in front of Peter, James, and John, two men stood there with him. We've seen, I think, a picture of them in Zechariah 4. These two anointed ones that stand before the Lord. Oh, by the way, you may not have seen this either. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that the law and the prophets testify toward this grace that we have through Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets point to Jesus. I don't know if you know this or not, but when Jesus was transfigured and God was saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. The law and the prophets stood there in person. Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses. And it's the law. By the way, people have tried to argue over the years. Well, how could Moses write the first five books? He dies in Deuteronomy. How could he write about his own death and all this kind of stuff? Let me just clarify it for you. Jesus said, have you not read Moses? And he talks about the first five books of the Bible. So if Jesus said Moses wrote it, that's good with me. I was in a seminary class where they spent hours breaking down these different theories as to who wrote this and who wrote that and higher criticism. And I raised my hand and said, Jesus said Moses wrote it. That's all I need to tell you. I don't need to outthink it. Kind of ruined the professor's production there. But <laughs> Elijah was the representative of the prophets. The law and the prophets stood there testifying to Jesus. But do you also notice... They know what's going on on the earth. Did you catch that? They're talking with Jesus about what's going to soon take place with his death and his resurrection, his departure from Jerusalem. Folks, let me just tell you, the Bible says, as from the body is present with the Lord, the Old Testament saints are with him. They don't get their new bodies till the end of the tribulation period. And, and all. So at the beginning of the, before the thousand year reign, they'll get their new bodies. We'll get to that in Revelation chapter 20. But they're with him right now. Those who have died in Christ are with him right now. They haven't got their new bodies yet either. That'll happen at the rapture when they come with him. And those of us who are alive will be caught up and we'll get our new bodies. And their bodies come out of the earth and they get their new bodies. But they are with him and they know what's going on on the earth. They're, they're not oblivious to what's happening. Yes, sir. We're going to get to that. We're going to get right to that. That's where we're going, and, and that's, a, that's a great point, and we're actually going to go there. And I'm glad you said that because I needed someone to kick me in the rear end a little bit because we're running out of time. So I get preaching, and I'll run ahead of myself here. Go to Malachi chapter 4, but we're going to come back to that. We're going to look at what you talked about in Matthew's account because I think Matthew's account helps us even more. But Malachi chapter 4. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. And look at verses 5 and 6. 
Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. God says, Behold, I will send you who? Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter decree of utter destruction. Look at what it says. Before the great and final day of the Lord, and the great and awesome day of the Lord, I'm going to send Elijah. And he's going to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children. Now go with me to Luke chapter 1, because I heard Mark over there say, has he been here yet? Actually, the answer is yes and no. And the question of has he been here yet, the answer is yes and no. Stick with me, because I'm about to show you something that might make your head hurt a little bit. In Luke chapter 1, look at verses 13 through 17. This is when Zechariah is being told that he and Elizabeth are going to have a child. The angel, verse 13 of Luke 1, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and, he'll have joy and, glad and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn... Many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, listen, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Remember we saw in Malachi chapter 4, I'm going to send you Elijah before the awesome day of the Lord, and he's going to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. Zechariah is told, you're to name this boy John. He's going to be filled with the Spirit from his birth, and he's going to be serving the Lord from his birth, and he's going to go in the Spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, which is the prophecy of Malachi. So now, was John Elijah, or is Elijah still to come? Yes. Yes and no. Because it's like when this guy was asking, you know, uh, and he said, well, Elijah has come. We're, you're quoting Matthew chapter 11. Let's go. Matthew, sorry, chapter 17. Matthew, what's your name, by the way? I've never met you. Nice to meet you, Gregory. I love a man that knows the word. That's, that's good stuff. Matthew chapter 17. Look at verses 1 through 13. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Greg's talking about what we're going to look at here. And now stick with me. This is the part that you're going to let the Spirit help you put this sink in. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because, you know, we're really excited about our buildings. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, listen closely, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. 
Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist was a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. If the nation of Israel had turned in faith and repentance to Jesus when he came the first time, that would have been the fulfillment of the prophecy. But God knowing men's hearts, John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And Elijah did come through John. But they did to him what they wanted. They killed him. They didn't want anything to do with him. And they rejected his message. Oh, but what did Jesus say? Elijah will come. And he will restore all things. Exactly. That he was the one. Exactly. Folks, so let me... The Bible says that in 1 John chapter 2, very clearly, verses 18 and following. Folks, let me just say this to you. The Bible says that Elijah is still going to come. I think one of the two witnesses, pretty clearly, especially when you look at James 5, 17, isn't that pretty cool? Is going to be Elijah. I think the other one's going to be Moses. And interestingly enough, this is another whole study for another time. I don't have time to get into this. Yeah, we saw Elijah taken up, you know, in the chariots of fire. But we don't know whatever happened to Moses' body. You know, the book of Jude tells us that the archangel Michael, when disputing with Satan over the body of Moses, something was going on in the heavenly realm, in the angelic realm, over the body of Moses. I think our two witnesses, the Bible already tells us who they are. Why would Satan care? Why would Satan care? Exactly. But now, who they are doesn't really matter as much as this, what their role is. You see, God is speaking through them as to men's need of repentance and reconciliation with God. They have been sent, they will be sent at that time to the nation of Israel to point them back to God. Remember, John was told to measure the temple. How did it measure up? Not so good. Measure the altar. How did it measure up? Not so good. And measure the people. How'd they measure up? Not so good. But God knew this, and he sent his two witnesses. He's going to send his two witnesses to preach in Jerusalem, clothed in sackcloth, for three and a half years. And buddy, they're going to get annoying to some people. And anybody tries to kill them and shut them up, God's got them protected in such a way, fire comes from their mouth. But he's going to allow the Antichrist to kill them at a certain point. But he's going to turn that into something awesome too, as their bodies lay in the street. And then three days and a half days later, they get up and God says, come on up here. Folks, let me just tell you, we have been given a similar role. I don't know if you know this or not. Actually, let me let the scripture show you what it says. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and we'll close with this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the, their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Did you catch that? God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. At the moment Jesus died on the cross, He paid for the sins of the entire world. He didn't die just for a certain few. He didn't die only for the elect. He died for the sins of the whole world. And at that moment, on God's side of the ledger, He actually says they're forgiven. That doesn't mean they're going to heaven. They now need to receive this offer. It's been paid for. It's been done. Folks, your message of salvation, this gospel that we share, is not God's mad at you, but if you ask Him to forgive you, He'll forgive you. Your message is, for God so loved the world, this, let me say it again, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God does not hate you. God loves you. And He's paid for your sin. I, I, my appeal is to you, be reconciled to God. How do I be reconciled to God? How do I be reconciled to God? By believing that God made him who was, had no sin to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And for those of us who are in Christ who struggle with this whole thing of really being forgiven, let me ask you a question. Um, did Jesus ever sin? Then how come he became sin? How did he become sin? God put it on him, Right? Did Jesus have righteousness? Do we have righteousness apart from Christ? Well, how do we get it then? How do we get righteousness? The same way. He puts sin on Jesus, and He can put His righteousness on us. And He can impute His righteousness to us. And when you by faith receive Jesus, when you by faith believe that what Jesus did covers you, God gives you the righteousness of Christ. It's not a how good you've been today kind of a thing. He who knew no sin was made sin. We believe that? You who didn't have any righteousness were made righteous. Believe it. And folks, just go out and when God gives you that opportunity throughout the day, be an ambassador. You don't have to go stand in the streets of Jerusalem clothed in sackcloth. You don't have to go stand on a street corner on a box yelling at folks. You can just go out and tell people as his ambassador, Jesus already paid for it. And just like he made Jesus sin so we could receive righteousness, he can make you righteous. And all you got to do is receive it. Isn't that a cool message? And if they receive it, great. If they don't, that's fine too. We're not to get them to believe it. We're just to go tell people. When we come back next week, I'm going to bring you back, possibly, to chapter 13. Don't hold your breath. Thanks for coming.